0: to the meet your species podcast my name is heath and today we have justin justin uh we met what i mean basically from the upgrade right right the online yeah. hatha yoga upgrade so if you guys don't know uh, i'm a hatha yoga teacher and Justin is as well and we're from the isha hatha yoga school so they have these upgrades every now and then and uh this year because of covid it was online for the first time which is well, yeah it was the first online upgrade right right, right. which is Kind of cool, I liked it. And um, anyway, we ended up getting to meet and it turned out you were in the same state, which was kind of cool. I didn't even realize until recently. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but anyway, yeah, welcome, man. and you ready to dive in? Sure, I'll say what I can. (laughs) (laughs) No worries. (laughs) Um, Cool, so uh,
1: you said you grew up in Columbus, Georgia, right? I grew up in Lagrange, oh okay Lagrange, so it's uh about an hour south of here Atlanta.
0: gotcha what what is um kind of paint a picture like what is it like growing up there? what was that like for you anyway
1: um, so Lagrange was Lagrange is a very small town, probably about thirty or forty thousand people yeah oh, okay when i was when I was there as a little kid, fewer people mm. and uh strong. Sort of Christian background in the community, um, sort of provincial, you know, insular sort of in how people <laughs> see the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I was when I was growing up, I never really felt like I belonged there. My parents were from out of the city, and there was it just it felt like when I was there that. Um, that there was there were like the people who had lived in Lagrange for their whole life for like generations, and then there were other people who were sort of new arrivals. The transplants. Tra- yeah, and then there was a to to be accepted by that sort of nativist group could be challenging if you didn't go to like the the main Baptist church or Oh, gotcha. Or um if you didn't have certain beliefs, conservative beliefs or practice certain customs and my mm-hmm. parents didn't do any of that so I for better or worse kind of felt like a, a bit of an outsider when I was going through elementary and middle school mm-hmm it's kind of
0: hard years if you're not like part of the community I, I moved quite a bit when I was younger and so I I definitely know what you mean like
1: if you're not in then I don't know it's just like a gap <laughs> Right. I mean, it's not like I'm not saying all the people like that, but there's a mm-hmm. sort of general sense. Mm-hmm. But I went to a really wonderful uh, art school. Went to from, art school. Yeah, from third grade through eighth grade, it was like a like a conservatory or what? No, it was it was like a like a kind of liberal arts school for primary and middle school kids. That's cool. So what's that like? What's what do they do differently? So all the instruction was like arts based. So if you learn. You know, if you're learning about sentence structure, you're learning it in the context of a certain story. Paint and your ABCs. <laughs> kind of, yeah. And then there was a lot of creative writing classes that I that I was able to do. And we had music classes. And and they, there was a very strong um, PTA group. Like all the parents would raise money to bring in performers from out of state and other places. Oh, cool. Whether it's like Africa. I remember we had African drummers and like professional storytellers would come and talk to us and mm. I you know as a kid I just thought it was just like that's what school was very normal but it wasn't until I got to high school when it's it really wasn't that kind of format that I realized how special that school was mm. Westside Magnet School interesting so uh
0: were there any like mm, like you said the performers coming and stuff were there any particular moments that kind of were
1: inspiring or made you look at things differently um i had a really really great librarian mrs hornsby who would uh she would just give i i read a lot when i was a kid like that was one of my. i played tennis and i read and that's pretty much what and i did my school work those are like the three basic things that i spent all my time doing Mm-hmm I don't know if I slept enough when I was like in <laughs> fourth or fifth grade, like I would, I would just do my homework as fast as I could and then just like sit in bed and read from like nine o'clock till past midnight or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um just read all kinds of different stories and I enjoyed the uh, being in my imagination.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What kind of books would draw you in? A lot of like fantasy. Um It's always like kids, you know, some kid who's on a quest. Like Harry Potter? Yeah, I read a lot of that. I read all the Harry Potter books when they first came out when I was a kid and really enjoyed those. Mm -hmm. But other books too, like people sort of are are removed from their their normal uh, everyday life and thrown into this world, which is sort of spectacular and strange and fantastic and terrifying at the same time. Mm Mm-hmm. And the kids trying to like navigate that new world. It's like coming of age kind of adventure, <laughs> right? Very similar to the entering the world of yoga, really. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like a <laughs> yeah. So uh, why tennis? My father was a uh, tennis coach. That's his job, mm-hmm. and he managed a, a tennis club at a resort called Calvary Gardens. Oh, that sounds familiar. Pretty close to. Did we Calvary
2: Gardens? Isn't that where we went for Christmas lights?
1: Yeah, we went for Christmas lights. Right, they have the Christmas lights, the fantasy lights every year. Mm -hmm. And I spent a lot of my time as a kid there just playing tennis. It's a a very small club, uh, very natural setting. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah, it's an idyllic place really to grow up and play tennis. Yeah, man. Uh, so... So my father taught me... How to play and it was i i probably when i look at look back at it i i played because i liked i just loved the game and i love the, the experience of you know being physical but at the same time it was also like a way for me to get closer to my father mm-hmm. as we would play a lot hit back and forth and
0: so how, how would you describe him like as a person
1: uh <laughs> <laughs> my father He always describes himself. I'm just an average guy. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, he's like, okay with being an average guy, (laughs) which has its benefits, but also its limitations. You know, Mm. like he, um, yeah, I mean, he just worked hard his whole life. I think he loved tennis from a very early age. I think he, and he came to it a little bit later. And and like the tennis world, if you if you start learning tennis when you're like 15 or 16, people think of that as like a late start. Oh, okay. So most of, the, most of the great players, you know, learn when they're very, very, very small. But you don't, because it's much easier to learn like these very subtle motor skills when you're you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Mm-hmm. And if you're playing competitive tournaments and you start playing when you're 16, the level is already very high. So it's hard to catch up. So I think he, he, I think he maybe felt a little bit of remorse that he didn't start earlier. Mm. I think he loved it. He loved playing, and he probably dreamed of being a pro tennis player, or a pro athlete. So he kind of got you going pretty early. Yeah, I think he wanted, you know, like a lot of parents, you know, wanted for me what he didn't wasn't able to do for himself. Due to maybe circumstance or his uh, economic upbringing, mm. he grew up in like a very working, working middle class family in Philadelphia. They didn't have as much money, and you know, tennis is kind of a yeah. can be a sport of the aristocracy. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> yeah. it's it presented like that. So,
0: yeah. What about the rest of your family? Do you? Have-
1: Siblings or... I have one younger brother. Oh, okay. He's I'm... a furniture designer. Oh, that's interesting. So he, he spent a lot of time in China working for an Italian company that makes furniture for a lot of big box stores here in the U.S. like Crate and Barrel or Williams-Sonoma. Interesting. Well, so what was your relationship like with him growing up? He... I like my brother. I don't. I never felt like we were in competition which was nice he he had very different interests than i had he was very much into visual arts and painting and he worked on cars he was like a designer designer yeah and i was more like writing thinking imagining stories and playing tennis and that's cool so um I say that about the competition because of my father's family, like him and his siblings were like very competitive with each other, which sometimes would create, uh, create friction, you know? (laughs) Um, I feel like I'm not being very descriptive, but okay. Well, tell us, uh, do you have any like funny stories from your childhood? Funny stories from my childhood? Yeah. Like I was telling you yesterday, we had, we had this, this, uh, series of car mishaps. Oh yeah, tell that story. That's funny. <laughs> so there was like I think maybe because my father grew up with uh, his his family and his parents never really having nice cars or nice things that when he when he actually bought things of his own he was very afraid of things going wrong. Mm. So we from cars that, you know, you had to clean the spark plugs every 10 minutes to get to school to cars that were slammed into trees or we had cars, cars that were stolen by people and there was one car that uh, got into a, it was stolen and got into a high speed chase and get driven off a bridge. and As you do. Startled. Yeah. <laughs> there was a car that got blown up in our driveway by somebody who was lighting incendiary devices around town. So all, all this- Natural. But I, I think I think it speaks to, it speaks to like uh, this kind of middle class scare, scarcity mindset, or you know fear for security, that you know you never your parents when you were growing up you never had as much money that you you felt like you needed to to be well, mm-hmm. and then you that just carries on through the generations, so I think it's something that my parents have dealt with and i've also seen in my own mind Mm. that you know you you want to buy something but then you have to buy something but you're like you know gritting your teeth as you put the money down because what (laughs) if i can't get that money that that i need to survive in some future time or something yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) what to do right um
0: so what about um are there any teachers or any other people that were kind of, like, not even necessarily mentors, but, like, I feel like it can be as simple as someone you meet just once, uh, but they said something that kind of made you think differently? When I was a kid? and Just any time.
1: Had um, a lot of people like that in my life. I mean, when I was when I was in high school, like uh, I watched I watched a lot of Roger Federer videos. Oh, who's that? I don't know. He's a he's like one of the greatest players in tennis. Oh, a tennis player. That's right. I remember that name you guys were talking and about. And I didn't really I didn't really care so much about his personality. It was more about just the way he way he moved and mm. how in sync he was with with the with the ball. Like there's a certain artistry you know, in in his. Style his style of play and mm-hmm. something I really aspired to. Just so like observing, trying to yeah, and then positive. I I would watch his videos and then I would I would spend a lot of time like in front of mirrors trying to like make my form look like his mm. and play the way he played. There's a
0: a thing in, in dance where they they worry about like the line, right? Like how the, the line of your body moves when you're moving right is it similar to um i mean not quite to dance level but when you're doing the tennis just getting like you're talking about like the way you're moving the way you're
1: the way he's yeah there's like like a sense of balance mm-hmm. even if not static balance but like dynamic balance so like if you're if you're moving in a certain way you can move in a very balanced way a very like almost symmetrical way Hmm. And how the energy is, how efficiently is the energy moving from the body into the ball? Mm. It's, so it's like there's certain, well, the best players have always been able to create a tremendous amount of energy with in very constrained time situations uh, without forcing it, you know. Like not just how you, how you're able to, <laughs> how you're able to turn in certain ways and it's hard it's hard to describe without like showing a video yeah but anybody who's watched who's watched fetter knows what i'm talking about because you can just hit really crazy shots with and make it look effortless Mm -hmm.
0: yeah i i think for me i wasn't watching tennis as much i was more watching like uh, i was more into like x games and this kind of like extreme sports But I I know what you mean, like you find someone who's uh, really mastered something. Like, for example, with snowboarding, um, Sean White was the guy for such a long time. (laughs) So when I I was starting, I wasn't anywhere near that level. But um, just watching it, you could see like, oh, wow, he's got a certain thing about the way he moves. And uh, I can relate to that just observing and trying to
1: see how do I improve. Yeah, it's also just an appeal to be a master of your mind and body. Mm -hmm. Anybody who's, who's really good at at a sport or an art, you know, they're only good at that because they understand on some level how their body works or how their mind works. Mm -hmm. I think as a kid, especially reading all these stories, you know, of like fictional stories about people who came into these, uh, Super, you might call them super normal abilities because of a deep understanding of how their mind and body worked. It's like I always wanted that in, in the world of tennis, you know. Mm-hmm. If I can just figure out how this works and how this works, then I can play like Federer. That was basically it. Just trying to figure <laughs> it out. Yeah. Yeah. I can dig it. <laughs> um,
0: any, uh, any other people you want to share, like it inspiring or? doesn't even have to be like someone famous just, just random
1: right, right. people in your life i had a religion professor professor mark wallace when i went to school in college who um i think he really he's, he he was one of the people who started sort of my desire to understand who i am and sort of where i come from and these these existential questions mm. you know what is being and (laughs) how does this all work? And so he, uh, I took a lot of classes with him reading all these like really esoteric French philosophers (laughs) trying to thinking that maybe if I could understand like Jacques Derrida or Emmanuel Kant or uh, Levinas, then, then maybe I would, be able to get to the heart of where I come from and what created me that it didn't work so didn't work sure. <laughs> <laughs> but I maybe it may be a set a foundation that mm. like a foundation from which to well, you know like you all you are where you are because you of all the moments you pass through, you know mm-hmm. I couldn't be here if I hadn't been doing that if I hadn't done that, I'd be somewhere else here, yeah who knows where that is right no idea
0: (laughs) um okay and so uh when you were going through school what did you like was there a difference in what you thought you wanted to do at a younger age versus after you kind of got out of school
1: i had no real idea of what i wanted to do in school i mean i would say things to my parents you know i want to be a u.s senator or something or a lawyer or whatever and maybe i believe it on some level but i in college uh probably the strongest career idea i had was to be a professor mm. of english or uh religious studies but I, after like three or four years i went to this this liberal arts college called Swarthmore college where people are very very intense academically I could just, I mean, I would spend, like a a typical day for me would be like getting up at, get up at seven o'clock or whatever, you know, study for a little bit, go to class all morning, uh, in the afternoon, go to some more classes or study, go to tennis practice, eat dinner. And then from like seven o'clock to like one in the morning, you're just in the library studying just continuously. Just every day like that? Every day like that. Yeah. Even on Sundays. You just go to the library and study. At least you got a little tennis in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was like tennis study. Uh, but after like three or four years of that, I was burned out on, on studying. Just totally- and it was like, do I really want to be a you know, professor and do this for the rest of my life? And I didn't.
0: What, um, what were the other people like at that school that you'd meet?
1: So, similar. People very hardworking. Mm-hmm. I think it was like, like half of the student population were either like valedictorians or salutatorians of their high school class. Mm-hmm. So it's like everybody was just like used to constantly studying. And I was part of that too. Yeah. That's a lot. <laughs> I mean, I I'm happy I did it in some way, but on the other on, on the other hand when I look back, I wish I had been a little more relaxed and you are know, not as, not as hard on myself because you can, you can demand so much of yourself that, that, um, if you don't do it in the, in the right way that, you know, you create a lot of unhappiness for yourself, you create a lot of anxiety and you, you set the course for like a mental schism. <laughs> after that so that's like after you right I decided. went to I, I went to like just speaking professionally I went to college and got a degree in English literature uh kind of spent I a, spent a year after college like very depressed I, <laughs> I had sort of had a lot of a lot of like emotional challenges my last year of college from this kind of burnout mm. Of like working so hard and and always, it was like this thing in my head that like if I didn't get like an A on everything, there was something wrong with me.
2: Mm.
1: And I think it was connected to some other false assumptions I had that that my my production, my performance, my um, was tied into my my whether or not I felt. Like I was worthy of love or worthwhile, like a worthwhile person. Gotcha. And I think that's very common in, in sort of these top colleges, liberal arts colleges, or otherwise, mm. probably around the world too. I've talked to some other people. Went to like IAT, you know, in India, or yeah, yeah, or Harvard or Princeton or whatever. And it's this sense that if I don't perform, it's because I'm like a, I'm, valuel- kind of I'm valueless. Yeah.
0: Well, um, at least from your experience at the college you went to, uh, how do you feel, or do you feel there's a way you could uh, get whatever like they're trying to get out of the school? Because normally you go to school for a purpose, right? You want to try and understand something or master a skill or whatever it is, whatever you're trying to do. Is there a way you could do that at that kind of school? Or something you would change to make
1: it uh Yeah, you let go of the outcome. Okay. You're just hundred percent invested in in some passion or something you love to do, but you're not so uh you're not so emotionally tied to what the outcome is, because that's what causes the mm. the stress, right? If I don't get the the A four GPA or whatever, you know, that's an outcome. Mm-hmm. That takes and and that, st- that stress like seeps into everything that you do, especially if you're in a, in a school environment where everything, all the projects you're working on are ultimately graded, right? Yeah, yeah. So like it kind of sucks all the joy out of whatever you're trying to study. So you could be doing this. I feel like if I did it again, <laughs> I, you know, not going to, not going to do it again, but <laughs> if I could do it again, um, I just wouldn't be so concerned about what the what the grade was. I would just you know, find things that I love to do and just put my heart into doing it and that's all. Mm. And whatever happened happened. I think back then I didn't really have the faith that that um you know, putting your heart into something will will bear fruit. I felt like if it wasn't you know, if it wasn't recognized at that time is oh if you don't have the validation of the A right if you don't have the validation of the A then then all that work will go to waste Mm -hmm. do you think that's something
0: that anything you would change in terms of like maybe the way the school is structured or it's just about like a mindset
1: shifting away from the goal I don't know if I think it's, it's, I don't know if it's the way the school is structured. I think it's just the way people approach their study and what, what people value in their mind. You know? mm. And sort of the uh, like there were certain professors that would, I think that understood what I, what I was talking about. And I think that guy, Mark Wallace, mm. he was one of those people and he would, he would just try to calm people down and be like, "Listen, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're, if you if, if you get an A minus on this paper, your life is not going to get ruined. You know, let's just look at like what you're actually here to do, which is understand. Use this material as like a as a as a mirror to try to understand your own mind and beliefs and mm. and what you want out of life. So, it's more of a it's like more of a cultural issue in universities and if there, were, maybe if there was some like more, um, I don't want to say counseling, but maybe like more discussion or more classes, maybe they already have that. You know, it's been, I graduated in 2010, so it's been 10 years, mm. but uh, to try to get people to get the priorities straight, you know? Yeah. Yeah
0: um so you said what was his name Wallace something Wallace yeah Mark Wallace he's Mark Wallace so you said he was trying to uh, help people figure out like uh, what is your what do you what do you want to do using
1: this as a mirror to understand yourself yeah you're reading all these like really turgid <laughs> philosophical texts you know the it's the kind of stuff that like, you like look at it for like, you look at one page for like half, like 15 minutes or half an hour and you read it again and you're like, what does this mean? <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's almost like once you, it's, I feel like reading a lot of these philosophers because like like, if I could understand like five pages, like really get the, like five pages, then I would get connected to the rest of it. Mm. Like there's a lot of repetition. Did it work? Yeah, it would just take a long time to get that first first bit. Yeah, but now it's I mean, I don't like reading that stuff now, but I think maybe on the on the plus side it, it created a lot of uh like mental sharpness. Mm. There's a lot, you know, in philosophy and it's all about discrimination. So what what kind
0: of um like In terms of developing mental sharpness and using this kind of stuff to understand yourself better, what kind of things did you um, learn, I guess, about yourself? What did I learn about myself? Yeah, like... (laughs) At the time or looking back? Well, I mean, both, I guess. (laughs) Because it's different, you know? Yeah. Like, what what was was the thing you thought you learned and then maybe (laughs) now? What are you
1: looking back at? How do you feel? I mean, I learned how to write, I learned how to uh, write and like, be able to put my thoughts on, on a on a paper so that somebody else could easily understand what I was trying to communicate, mm. which is not as, for me at least, it wasn't as simple as, you know, just doing that. Because a lot of times you try, you think you're saying something, but when somebody else reads, you know, they read something totally different. Yeah. And they don't understand. Like, well, I just put it. I put it there, but you didn't. You know, <laughs> you didn't present it as as you as you understand it. Yeah. So to be able to take that understanding and really put it on the on the page in a way that is easy for somebody to get, it's like learning how to articulate properly. Right. How to articulate things in language. I mean, sometimes you have like feelings and thoughts that are prelingual. You know, they're not there's a certain perception you have of something that's that that takes a lot of effort to articulate you know Mm -hmm. and it's like a skill that you practice i think it's that's like most writers are working on that skill constantly
2: Mm
0: -hmm. yeah i i had a um someone who i was with for uh, about a year in atlanta we're living together and her mind was so sharp because she was much more well-read than I was. And there were so many times where I was like, I know I'm right, but I have no idea how to explain this to you. <laughs> it was so frustrating to me. So that year spent with her really helped me figure out how to articulate it like, mm-hmm. much better than I was previously. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. That was a difficult lesson to understand even that I'm to realize that I'm not articulating it properly. And that's really the problem.
1: Yes, yeah, it's something you, Mental you just kept working at it until you start to kind of get a hang of it.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so what led you from that like how did you get from there to
1: yoga? Uh, right. So I was um I'm not really quite sure, but I have some, I have some theories. <laughs> Bring <on> the theories. <laughs> I, mean, I, I was dating a girl, uh, in college. We were together for a long time, maybe four or five years. Uh, I, I really liked being around her and, and in a way it was, she was like a kind of emotional crutch for me, you know, cause I was, I was unhappy. You know, doing all this, you know, academic self cutting, you know. If you want to call it. <laughs> <laughs> so you know. Um, the constant stress of, you know, am I gonna perform? Am I gonna get into Harvard Law School or whatever whatever idea I had back then. I think I wanted to be a Rhodes scholar. That was one of my main goals. What exactly is that? So it's like it's like it's supposed to be the the ultimate and you know the A guy. It's like the A of the A guy. Oh, is it like <laughs> a- like like Rhodes oh. Scholars will you know they usually have like four point oh GPAs, or, and you get to, you get a free scholarship to go to England and study at like an English university. Oh, okay. <laughs> Either for a master's program, or I think some people continue and do like a PhD. There's a lot, there's a lot of prestige attached to it. So, but it's like a, a title you were in or something. Yeah. It's like a, gotcha. like a scholar, kind of a, a fellowship you could say mm-hmm. that you get out of under, when you finish your undergraduate. Gotcha. So you thought you wanted to do that? Yeah. Okay. I thought I wanted to do that, but, it, but the, because I was so attached to that result, you know, it caused a lot of emotional pain. And so I, I, met this girl, and that, um, and she was almost like a kind of, you know, salve you know, for this yeah. emotional pain. Yeah. And I, I think she had, a, you know, a lot of times when you're in certain places, she was going through the same thing. I would imagine, or I think she was. Who knows? But, um. I think, you know, she had a lot of high expectations for herself as well. So we were sort of, I think we were sort of like these emotional crutches for each other because there was no self-love. Uh, you know, you meet somebody and they say they love you and oh, you must hold on to this person, right? Yeah, yeah. And then that ended uh, a few years after I had finished college. And I'd even, I'd even moved up to New York because I wanted to, because that's where she was from and and I got a job up there and it was, in my mind, I was going to, you know, live with her and we were going to get married and I think we were going to, you know, continue in our life together. Uh, but that didn't happen. Uh, it, that ended and and then I I got, not too long after that, uh, I got fired or let go from my, my job as a tennis journalist in New York. I was working for a magazine called Tennis Magazine. Mm -hmm. Um, reviewing a lot of (laughs) equipment actually I was like I was like the racket guy or the shoe guy the racket guy So, so all the companies would like send all this stuff to me and I would I would write about it so I used all those writing skills I got in college to to write this kind of like quasi advertorial material yeah
2: Subtle it's, like, it's like
1: supposed to present it as a review, but you know, there's so much pressure from uh, Like you, yeah, The magazine has these you know advertising partners who are also making this equipment mm. That are giving they're giving it to the magazine and being like, you yeah, make sure you give an objective review about this, you know <laughs> 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 So I was doing that and I got let go from that job. So I you know, I'm Minus the girl that I love, minus a job and a sense of security, and then back home living with my parents. And it's like, well, what now? And then I had I got diagnosed with a thyroid issue. Oh, everything. Really? Yeah, so it was so my energy was all screwed up and just very, very unhappy. I was trying to do trying to do different things to Kind of come out of that i did some volunteering for a uh, like youth soccer organization was teaching some tennis and but overall just sort of felt like you know i was a failure and very depressed and parents are like you know what are you going to do with your life what's wrong with you <laughs> sleeping a lot just not in a good not in a good place and then i i came across a I don't know how, but all these sort of documentaries about Tibetan Buddhist monks and which led me to Sedgur, sort of watching his videos and, and doing some of the meditations and it helped me a lot. Mm. And one thing led to another and, you know, entered into yoga world as a kind of self-treatment. Yoga world.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious, uh, when you were, you said you were in like a religion class, right? In college? Yeah. Did they go into anything on yoga like
1: Eastern stuff? Yeah. I took a, I took a, a class called Patterns of Eastern Religions, mm. but it was all presented as like a very, you know, intellectual system. Like there's no experiential side to it. Like they didn't, I think if I had been doing meditation at that time or... I've been introduced to yoga concurrently with reading these, you know, religious texts that they would have a different, very different meaning than they had then. Then it was more like, you know, I got to just Buddhism means this, 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 I got to memorize this list. You know, we have a test on it. So, And <laughs> 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 you know, once in a while you read this stuff and be like, Oh, that's pretty interesting. You know, that's but it I mean, does, it, it does go in here somewhere, which was useful in the future, especially in some of these like, Spiritual experiences hmm. i I find myself remembering some of those things that I read and understanding them differently, but Did, were you able to help the thyroid thing with that, or yeah, I think it was like a lot of the i mean, i because of the thyroid issue, I learned a lot about nutrition, changed my diet, and uh learned a lot about different ways of supplementing to improve the health of your thyroid. I think most of the most of the thyroid issue was emotional really because you know if you if your body is in a constant state of stress you know the your glandular system is not working properly yeah releasing all those stress chemicals yeah, know, yeah. Right? so like doing doing the different Isha programs so I did the in you know, engineering and BSP and Shunya and did all the programs um, I don't know it created a different sort of emotional baseline, Mm. which makes me feel much better now than then, definitely. (laughs) That's good. Yeah. Seems to be working. Yeah. Yeah. I'm happy to have done it all.
0: And so why did you decide to go for the teacher training then?
1: Uh, I was talking to Shravani about this last night. So when I when I first discovered Sadhguru, it was like on the one hand, I was very, very curious about what he had to what he was saying what he it's like you watch these videos like this guy actually does know something here. Mm-hmm. You know. And I wanted to know and experience what he seemed to know and experience. So that was a motivation to to get into your world. <laughs> but on the other, on the, at the same time, though, it was like I was so unhappy where I was that I was highly, highly motivated to do whatever, you know, meditation or yoga was required to come out of that situation mm. in my ex- experientially, you know, not necessarily change the situation of my life, but at least not like suffer so much. Yeah. yeah. So I started doing. One of the free meditations online, the Isha Kriya. I would do it like, like seven hours a day. <laughs> seven hours? Oh <laughs> yeah. Because I, I was, I would like sit down at like eight or nine p.m. There was a, like in the one of the back rooms, of my parents' house, I was staying, in, and just sit cross-legged and like lean against a wall and just close my eyes and just start doing it. There's like a mantra on that. Meditation. I'm not the body. I'm not the mind. I'm not. So I would just say that over and over again, and like just if my mind went somewhere else, I would just keep bringing it back and just keep doing it. It's like sharpening the. <laughs> I guess. And um as I did that, though, I become. It was like I sort of noticed all these weird sensations that I'd never felt in my body. Noticing my breath moving in different ways. Like there was. I remember. I had felt there was one point where I felt like I wasn't, wasn't really breathing. Like it felt like I needed air, but I, but I was just sitting there and I was fine. So like things like that, it's like, I'd never really been aware of my breath, you know, or it was just very, things were very different. So I did that for a couple of weeks and, um, I'm still not exactly sure how it happened, but I had like, you know, what people call like a Kundalini experience. So it's like I had gone out, I went outside one day and all of a sudden it just felt like it's actually quite painful. Like it felt like I got a- electrocuted. Like it was like electric- electricity, like running up through my body. I remember how it, like it felt like it was like snaking through my arms and like up my body. And actually like knocked me to the ground, I was, uh, <laughs> you know, crying and I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> no, nothing in my education had prepared me for that. <laughs> yeah. I had no idea what was going on. It was, it was like, on the one hand, what, what followed that was a couple of weeks of like seeing the world in like a totally different way. Things felt like, like looked like they were moving in slow motion. Um, like I, I went to play tennis and the ball's like coming at me like this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> like wow, <laughs> <I was just laughs> and uh, you know you just like looking at like the trees and the flowers just like moving, and everything just looks so fantastic. I remember one one night I was like walking and it was like misting and. I thought, I thought I like died really like maybe like, maybe this was like the process of dying. And I was about to get like picked up by some spirit being or something and like whisked away to another world because it was like, it was so different. And I had, I had no context to understand like what had happened. Mm. And then I, and then I kind of came down from that experience and was sort of better, definitely better than where I was beforehand like kind of more of a sense of stability and um, inner balance, but just wanted to understand like, what the hell, what, what the hell was that? You know? How does yeah. that, what is that? And then I f- just figured like, all right, well, this, this seems to have been caused by that sadhu meditation. So he must know what's going on, what this is about. <laughs> so that was like why I did all these programs and. Just to figure it out. Try to figure out like, what the hell, what was that? Mm-hmm. So to kind of understand better what understand the importance of like in yoga not just raising your energy levels but having like the balance of mind and body to be able to hold that energy and experience it without like going crazy, mm-hmm. which I definitely had gotten very close to <laughs> you know some people I think I think a lot of people who go into mental institutions they may have had experiences like that, but they 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 happen in the wrong times or they misinterpret it, misinterpret it, what it means. Mm, just to know what's going on. Yeah. And it can be, it can be a liberating thing, but also it can be highly, highly destabilizing. As I mean, a lot of people, have, I'm not the only person who's had this. But. Yeah, no, I, I think
0: whenever um, I had been around people doing certain like psychedelics and stuff when I was in my early 20s, I noticed like. Some people got clear, and some people I don't know where they went, but they didn't really come back. <laughs> right, I, I don't know. I don't know what their experience was, but it didn't seem like they became more stable after it. Yeah, it could like
1: break some people, right? and Other people yeah. could really transform their lives.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: This is very interesting, but um, I think the yoga approach is very, very sane and
0: yeah, very they, healthy. They make it very. I think the way he described it is like building a staircase versus jumping on a trampoline. Right, It was very apt. <laughs> you're just slowly, tick 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 tick, you know, building the staircase, and mm-hmm. then, you, you know, at some point you get there, but you're stable.
1: And uh, yeah, this has to be able to handle that. Your mind and your body. Mm-hmm. There were some times during that ex- that first experience where I would, I had gone to the beach, for uh, the wedding of my cousin and was acting very very strange. Um uh, but I remember walking on the beach and it was like he was acting strange, you were acting strange. I was acting very strange, you know. Okay. You know, kind wandering off on these like random <laughs> walks down the beach and uh, was all kinds of things going through my head that I won't go into cuz I don't know how relevant it is for people, but I just remember walking on the beach and feeling like like I was, every step I was taking, I was getting like shocked, like on the bottom of my feet. And you wanted to keep walking? But I was like, it was, it was like painful. It hurt a lot, but at the same time, it was like the wildest and most interesting thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> so there was these two things like pulling it. You know, the one thing like wanted to draw back from that experience and be like, okay, I need safety. You now this is, this is like really pushing the boundaries of what I consider sanity But on the other hand, it was like, this is the most fantastic and fascinating thing that's ever happened to me. And I didn't want to go back from that. Mm. So there was this sort of push and pull going, but now I look back at it and it was just, you know, a lifetime of, of eating whatever people in mainstream society eat and thinking the way most people in mainstream society think. and those kind of patterns of living and behavior are not good preparation for, for that level of energy. You know, mm-hmm. so I think like what I've learned, what what made me interested to go to the Hatha Yoga School was to really stabilize this further, so that I can I can live with that that level of like what Sadhguru calls it, like that level of voltage. That's like the best term that I've heard to describe the energy. And when the voltage gets cranked up, you know, this has to be able to handle that and be able to experience it in a balanced way. And your mind is, and then the mind especially, yeah. it has to interpret it in the most healthy and... Just not freak out. Not freak out, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, hmm.
0: Shrav, how are we on time... I don't want to make you late for your bus. No.
2: Okay.
1: 2.37. Okay, good. So we have... I think as long as we leave by... What? 3.30 or something? Yeah. Uh, I think the bus leaves at 4.15. Okay. So we
0: should be good. All right. Cool. So, uh... So then you went for the training. What... What was the most unexpected thing on this whole yogic journey? Like, you know, you go into it thinking like, okay, I need to something figure out what is all this. <laughs> and it's definitely not something you read in a book. Like, no. oh, it's going to be like this. So
1: well, there are books about it, but you know, they're not, you have to look for them. Yeah. And probably speak a different language. <laughs> <English>. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. So you're saying what, what was the most surprising thing that happened? Mm-hmm. Or people you met or like whatever. I think it's all so many surprising things. Like, It's just, you think that you're, the weird thing about awareness is is like you think you are a certain way. You just think that's the way it is because that's all you've really experienced. And then something happens. There's like some, some click or whatever. Then you go, that's just an idea that's like just an idea, you know it's not <laughs> that's not me, <laughs> and there's a there's a kind of wait a minute, yeah, there's like a stepping back like wait a minute, I've never stepped back from this, like I've had this going through my head for probably like decades, and I'm now just stepping back you feel very very relieved on the one hand but also like very stupid feel mm. <laughs> <laughs> like, man, this is. Took me this long. I'm like in my thirties and I'm just seeing this now, you know? (laughs) So there's a lot of those moments. Yeah. You know, doing all the different programs, Isha programs and and practices. But Hatha Yoga School in particular, I just found it very, they're able to strike that balance between ensuring, um, this is very rare, you know, didn't, strike that balance between ensuring that people are disciplined because you know how are you going to stabilize this unless you have discipline. some kind of practice or discipline you know but at the same time they do it in a in a very warm and supportive way because i you know i've been to tennis camps and where there's a this very disciplined environment but it's it's done in like in a very abusive way like like a boot camp kind of thing? like a boot camp yeah or i worked i remember i worked in at this camp on Hilton Head Island. Uh I won't say the name of the camp. <laughs> <laughs> but but the, co- the the players there were great. The kids were like nationally ranked and and I was like a hitting partner and sort of they they let me teach a little bit and then I would learn hmm. and I would participate in some of their programs and improve my own game. But I remember the uh, a lot of times like coach one of the coaches like screaming at like 13 or 14 year old kids you know the kids like crying how about seems a bit much <laughs> yeah like you're like well you know why didn't you you got to hit that forehand earlier and what's wrong with you that kind of thing so there's discipline there but it's it's done in, in such a way that the kid is like emotionally harmed so the, the wonderful thing about the hatha yoga school is you know they push you no doubt about that Oh yeah, everybody gets up at you know four o'clock in the morning and goes and does your practice. And if you don't get there on time, you know they sit you out and have a talk with you. So all that is there, but it's but the experience you're feeling is like this is a very warm and supportive place, and people really want the best for me. Mm -hmm. And that's something I never really. um, It's something I've. A, a, an environment that I've rarely experienced. Yeah, it's a
0: it's a wild place. Like I've never seen, not just the school, but the whole ashram running on volunteers with that large of an organization is, right. It's a feat.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you have to ask, why are all these people doing that? Yeah. When I first got involved at Yisha, was my nice, I was a little bit scared. Like I thought maybe this is just a bunch of. Insane people in a cult, you know. Yeah. Um, um, but that as you do some of these programs yourself and have these—I don't know what you want to call them—spiritual experiences, and you talk to people and you hear their stories, you start understand that okay, people are having very, very powerful uh, experiences and shifts in how they perceive things, and that's why and because these these shifts have been so beneficial for them you know that's why they're giving so much of themselves to this organization without mm-hmm. expecting any payment or because it becomes like the most it becomes the most important thing yeah to experience that yourself and to want to give that to your friends and family and so that people don't have to <laughs> suffer for no reason <laughs> All the suffering is just, you know, it's all, it's all here—nonsense and conditioning in your head.
0: I'm curious, since you have a much more academic background than I do, and especially with the kind of uh, college you're going to, um, what I've found—the tendency in the West is, when it comes to all the spiritual stuff, is to try and make it intellectual. Like you're saying, that religion class is breaking it into like a right. thing, like that step by step thing. And whenever, whenever I listen to either Saguru, or just whatever they're teaching in the programs, it's it's like somehow they're giving you a lot of information at the same time they're not giving you much of anything. <laughs> There's like this interesting balance. Like how do I how to articulate it in a way where they get the point, what they need, but not overly, right. oh like I understand it all now kind of thing. Right, right. Um, how did you feel about it coming from that more intellectual kind of academic background?
1: When I first got involved in going to the Isha programs, it was definitely like, a, like I was listening, like I would be in a class, you know, mm-hmm. trying to organize everything in my mind constantly. So you take some piece of information and you want it to, you want it to, it's like, imagine you're all the information in your mind is in a certain structure and then as a, as a new piece of information comes in, you want to anneal that or you want to place that in the structure that you have so that mm-hmm. you can remember it or you can use it more easily. But sometimes, that, you know, your structure is not the right structure. Right? It's not. It's a, it's a certain paradigm that that may not account or may not be open to these this type of information so I think uh, I think uh, my first maybe couple of years I was spending a lot of time just like sort of reorganizing the structure in my head
2: mm.
1: and a, that is isn't intellectual thing it is a kind of intellectual work you know to be asking a lot of questions yourself like as you're as you're eating your meal you know thinking like well he said this but that guy said this and how does that line up again? And it's a lot of that sort of work. I don't I don't do that so much anymore because I find it at a certain point as it becomes like very tedious. And now it's more like just, just paying attention to everything that's going on in here and just just watching it. Mm-hmm. And then letting and letting that. If there may, if your mental or emotional structure needs to be rearranged, just like letting that happen uh, on its own, instead of trying to like force it into a particular arrangement that you think it should be in, fit in this box because that's the way I think it is, <laughs> right? Yeah, I guess maybe I, that's like maybe one way of understanding how he says going in installments. You know, Sadhguru says you know be you know people want to go into installments on their spiritual journey. It's like, it's like I came with all these, you know, boxes and concepts that I had learned in school and because it took me so much effort to gather them, (laughs) (laughs) I don't, they're very precious. I don't want to lose all of them. So maybe one piece of information comes and it's like, okay, this information plus my experience means that this concept is definitely not correct. But maybe all those other concepts are there. We're going to hold on to those. <laughs> so it's like a, it's a, you know, the process is, it's, it's like, like a... you're like very, very oh, unwillingly parting with all these precious concepts that you've had. To, but now it's more like, because I've seen how many of wrong assumptions and things I thought I knew and I really don't know that, Mm-hmm. No, it just, it's just the only thing I really believe in is just paying attention. Paying attention to this and whatever happens, needs to happen, will happen. Mm. It's like a more, I don't know what you want to call it, like a right brain approach, maybe. Just a more open approach. I mean, even that is logical, right?
0: Like simply paying attention because it's not coming to any assumptions, like, okay, I just need to learn to focus, see what's going on. I'd say that's pretty
1: logical. Do you think it's a logical thing? Well, I don't know if you have to do anything, though. You just have to pay attention. Yeah, but I mean,
0: to have the the willingness to look at it without coming to conclusions is, in a way, a very can be a very dry thing because you have to remove all the, um, the extra jumps and conclusions that is easy to come to. So it's very like cutting through
1: in a way. Yeah. It does. It does feel like kind of dry sometimes you just constantly like staring at something.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean like, um, internally for me, he, he said something about water like what is this water and it's like such a basic statement it's like oh well it's it's water okay but what is that like when i started thinking about that i was like okay okay i don't know <laughs> and once i finally came to that point when i don't know then i think okay what do i know and there's not a lot right. but, he, but you have to go through and just keep dismantling all those things and i feel like that takes a lot of uh Mental. What do you call it?
1: Discipline. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, it's like you keep at it. Yeah. You don't give up. I don't you know. don't. You don't. Um... It takes a certain faith, doesn't it? That you're that paying attention. Like what you say there but i don't okay so i don't know if i don't if i know i don't know then i'm more willing to pay attention because mm-hmm. i want to know yeah and because i don't know i'll just continue paying attention Not really. is that faith i don't know how do you It is it? a certain faith that like your attention can yield something that through attention that you can know something i mean a lot of, a lot of people might inter might say okay i don't know and i'll never know fathers of that opinion but that that for me is more belief than anything
0: because like for example these plants when I pay attention to them I was growing a, a catnip plant once and I started noticing each and every day I'd water it and I would turn it slightly because the sun was just coming from one side I noticed that each day the plant was trying to adjust and then I realized like oh I'm making this more difficult for the plant because it has to keep <laughs> moving itself every day right so like like that just by paying attention to it I started learning things and I can do that with everything. Right. So okay. it wasn't so much like,
1: I believe that'll yield something. It's just, that's how it's always been. Like in the natural world, though, you're saying you pay attention to something, you can understand how it works. I mean, anything, right. I, it's just a question of, yeah, but there is a kind of jump though, isn't there from, from saying, okay, if I pay attention to the plant, you know, I know, I'll know what, what best soil that I need to put into it or, know what the best place in the yard is for it there's that but there's there's But when you go into like if i pay enough attention i'll know the source of my being you know there's a jump between that and and that you know (laughs) sure but for me that's like a certain faith that it's like if i pay enough attention if i really really pay attention I will get it, or it more likely than not, like, it will get me.
0: <laughs>
1: I don't know. I mean, I, I know what you're saying, though. But to balance that dryness, because that attention takes a lot of just, you keep paying attention. The I got very, more recently, interested in chanting mantras and, and practicing devotion. One of my favorite, in the last few weeks, one of the my favorite things to listen to is the Heart Sutra. Mm. It's like a like a Buddhist chant. And as, a, as I understand it, they say, you know, like, form is emptiness, and emptiness is form. And if you get that, then if you see that everybody is out of the same stuff and you experience that, it's like similar to kind of the BSP experience. Then it's much easier to have compassion and, and love for all the life around you. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a kind of mental also like a mental way of going at that. But yeah. but I find that it does, it does make me feel more open to people and like kind of sweeter, which makes the attention part more fun. Sure. A little more juice. Yeah, more juice. <laughs> I like the oatmeal because the berries are in it, right? I know, you need juice. Without (laughs) juice, it's like, it's hard to sustain some kind of practice. Mm. So um,
0: with uh, all of this, uh, I guess it's not 2020 anymore, but the pandemic, stuff that's coming or it has come and here we are in this whole situation um how is that like i guess more in like a looking forward kind of seeing what you think about it where do you think all this
1: is kind of going based on what you're seeing what the what what effect the pandemic is having on people Mm mm-hmm It's having all kinds of effects and more. Well, yeah, yeah. I just mean because uh, you're living somewhere other than where I'm living, so different people, different experiences. Yeah. uh, You know, I find people have wildly different interpretations of what it means. And because I've heard so many, I I really honestly don't know what it means. I know there's a certain um, biological reality to it. Like in terms of, you know, when you look at statistics of sort of like death death rates per year, you know, they definitely have gone up, mm-hmm. but in terms of like what is causing that, is it is it purely just like a mechanical virus or is there some sort of other type of virus that's happening? I think there's, there are a lot of causative factors coming together. And, you know, how people use their mind in an event like this on a collective scale, it's has effects on people's health. Mm. And I've, but I've, I've, I have, I play tennis with a lot of people, who, you know, they believe that the virus is just a flu. And then I know other people who feel like it's like, you know, if I take one wrong sniff, you know, it's going to kill me tomorrow you know some people think that all the vaccinations are are fraudulent and uh, other people feel like you know we should excise excommunicate all the people from society who who have reservations about vaccination <laughs> so I, i've heard the whole gamut of from different people that I know. And to be quite honest, I have no idea what the pandemic means. <laughs> well, what does it mean for you? Cause it, you know, we've had, well, okay. What day. it means like in a, in a like global sense is different than, I guess what it means for me. Mm-hmm.
2: What it's meant for me
1: is just, uh, feels a little bit more of an acceleration of becoming more aware. Mm. Like I think, uh, slightly more chaotic external situation can cause you to be more interested or be more interested in looking at yourself and sort of why you're doing what you're doing and why you're saying and believing what you're believing. Mm -hmm. I think before the, before the, I'll preface this by saying like after the teacher training in, in 2019, so I, I, I flew to China in January oh.
2: <laughs> to, visit,
1: <Whoa>. <laughs> <laughs> to visit my brother, who was living in China at that time. He lives in Vietnam now, but uh, I just thought I was just going to be there and taking care of his dog while he went on vacation to Japan and hang out in his apartment and walk around China, you know? And, and I wasn't really keyed in too much with the news. I had heard that there was this thing going on in Wuhan. You know, but that was like 700 miles away from where my brother lived <laughs> in Dongguan. I was like, ah, you know, whatever. <laughs> so I land, I land in China, and it's like it's like the first day I'm there. I'm, I'm all of a sudden I'm feeling like, man, I don't feel good at all. Like this, is, <laughs> I feel like really sick. And I had been there before, and there's a lot of air pollution, so I just thought maybe I'm just, you know, just having a lot of sore throat, and because. But I just felt like really tired and not good. I was still doing my hatha yoga practice, which maybe just kept me going. Um, but it took about almost two weeks for me to not feel sick again. So I look back and I wonder, like, did I did you get it? did I get the virus at that time? I don't know. I never got tested for antibodies or anything, but I suspect that I probably. Did have it. So, but when did you make it back here? In. Uh, in March. Oh, so like, were the lockdowns already starting? Well, that's the thing. So that was I was in China, and my brother was calling me up saying, "Like, listen, Justin, you have to leave the country because they're shutting the borders from China to Hong Kong." I was like, "What? they doing Why? I was like, <laughs> "Yeah." <laughs> so. So when. I, my sense about. I didn't want to be in China during it. I didn't want to get stuck in China during this uh, pandemic situation because that doesn't sound you just you. don't know. I, I'm very, over there, like very, you get a, China has a lot of surveillance and a lot of, you know, government intrusion the people's lives and it's a very much of an, the closest thing to a totalitarian state that i've ever experienced So, like you know you go down through a park and you've got like every block is like a giant camera mm. you know with like speakers next to the camera like just in case they had to talk to you playing all kinds of <laughs> like political messages and stuff so um the reason i'm mentioning that is is before the pandemic i was just very very suspicious of Propaganda and how control, whether it's like how governments ex- ex- exert influence or how corporate entities exert influence, and the kind of um, tactics that they use to get people to internalize the message that they want to project into the world. Mm-hmm. So, I had, I had actually studied that for years. Mm-hmm. There was a guy named a very famous propagandist named Edward Bernays. I think his name was, and he 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 called. I think I'm trying to remember the term he used. It was like the um. It was like the engineering of consent.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so you can if you can get a certain number of like experts in certain fields to sort of be on your side and you, and you arrange them a certain way and present information in a certain way. You can, you know, you can like convince, convince, people, convince something. people of something is the case, which is may not be the case or may not be the full story. So I was initially, I was seeing, I was kind of seeing the virus through that lens. Like, you know, what is, what's actually happening and what is, um, what is being presented as happening, which will benefit sort of large powerful entities Mm -hmm. but as the as this year has gone by like I'm I'm less and less interested in knowing that (laughs) like Uh, about propaganda yeah I'm less uh, I mean I know that the virus is definitely you know worse than the flu from what I can tell um Maybe I'm just not as full of not not full of, of as much fear of some like big bad boogeyman, you know, trying to yeah, like yeah. engineer my life in the way that they see fit or Whereas, like injecting you with microchips or whatever, right? Right? All that stuff. Like, I'm not as concerned about that, mm-hmm. but so, um, somehow, somehow the going through the pandemic has made me has made that shift a little bit, not as worried about like getting controlled or i feel like i feel like i can still determine the course of my i'm not being being very articulate here but do you do you understand what i'm yeah, trying yeah. to say i know what you mean <laughs> it's um uh, uh
0: i i think i'm more concerned with like facebook ads than government propaganda at this point <laughs> just because we watched this documentary um the social dilemma did you see that i haven't seen that one Uh, Basically, they just had a lot of people that worked in the tech industry explaining the exact technique, probably what you know from this uh, propaganda, like exactly how to um, push the needle on conversions for ads. And it does not have to be for buying products. It can be for just about anything. Hmm. But specifically keeping them on the platform is what they used it for because that means more ads get shown. And so uh, the one takeaway I got um, that I thought was really, really great to encapsulate it in one sentence is if you're not paying for it you are the product (laughs) and i was like oh yeah (laughs) that's very true (laughs)
1: what does that mean if you're not paying for it you
0: are the product well you don't pay for facebook do you You you're the product your attention is the product
1: Right. Okay.
0: So you're, in, it's not like um, they haven't designed these platforms in a way where it's for you to connect to other people and meet your family. And all it's like, no, how long can I keep you on here? And how, what's the rate at which I can give you ads to sell these products? And right. that's their profit model, right?
1: Right, right, right. So, your conditioning is their profit.
0: Yeah. And I mean, once that's established and you're paying for attention, okay, now if I'm some unscrupulous actor from, who knows where, for whatever motives. How can I manipulate this with enough money to influence something? Even if it's only 5%, it could be massive or billions of dollars for me if I'm, you know, whatever, or any other nefarious reason.
1: I guess that is, okay, that's... Before the pandemic, I was very, very concerned about how unscrupulous actors, that's a good term, um, were trying to manipulate my behavior Mm -hmm. in ways that benefited them but hurt me. But as I've become more aware and sort of learned how my mind operates, and I don't feel as um, open to that. Not as susceptible. Not as susceptible, yeah. So that's kind of also one of my interests initially in doing yoga was to be free, you know, being more independent. Mm. To not be, If you're not attached to your mind, if you have some distance between you and, and what goes through your mind, then... If somebody tries to plant something there that's not in your interests, or not, it's not going to take you in the direction that you want your life to go, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to take a bite out of it. You can just let it go by. Mm-hmm. Fair enough.
0: You know, you just triggered a memory for me. One of the first things that uh, I was thinking before I got into yoga or any of this is, okay, what's the worst thing that can happen to me? I mean, apart from like being tortured or something, let's leave that aside. Probably the worst thing I can think of is would I be put in prison or something? Uh-huh. Like put in a box. That's like the complete lack of autonomy or freedom. And so I was like, okay, how do I make sure even if that kind of thing happened, I'd be good? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, if I can just sit still and be like blissed out, <laughs> then, then you're in good shape. Right? All right. I mean, I don't still don't want to go to prison, but um, at least I'd be good. And that was like, I don't, that's such a strange place for me to think back and be like, that was my mentality going into all this. <laughs> I just want to not be, have a problem if I go to prison. <laughs> Didn't your family go to prison? No, there was no reason for me to even think, oh, you're going to go to prison. It's like, a good thought experiment though.
1: Yeah. I guess. It's so like if you can be, you take a really extreme environment, like war or something, it's like, if I can be happy in war, I'll be in good shape in life.
0: Yeah, I don't know if I want to be happy in war, but
1: I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Um, like they always tell the story of Krishna, you know, like...
0: Oh, yeah, enjoying ...laughing in battle or something, you know. Yeah, but he also spent,
1: like, how much time trying to prevent the war from happening in the first right, place. Right, right, of course. But if you find, if you are compelled to be in that situation, or you thrown into a... Yeah, just be good. Like, all right. So I guess happen? you shouldn't be compelled. You should, not if you're there, you should be there consciously. Anyway, <laughs> diving down that <laughs> rabbit hole.
0: Um, so, I'm curious, what are the like when you meet new people? What are the characteristics that you value the most? The like characteristics. Yeah, like. Uh, Some people might be honesty, some people might be this, this, like, whatever. What are the things that you value in other people? Like, when you meet someone new, I can find a way to enjoy just about anybody's company. But there's some people that, like, um, for example, I really appreciate when someone's able to say what needs to be said, even though it's hard, it might hurt somebody's feelings or whatever, but this really needs to be said. Like, that's a characteristic in somebody I really appreciate. Like, what are the things like that that you value in
1: other people that you come across? you courage there, right? Courage to say things that are needed. Um, I don't or value in people. Or in yourself. You I mean, continue? a lot of times when I, when I meet new people, I don't... Don't really care how they are. <laughs> I mean I'd like I'd like to meet people who are who are unique you know you don't want to meet somebody that you've already met just in a different body <laughs> I mean it's more fun to to converse and engage with people who say things that you've never thought about then ask you questions that you've never asked
2: mm.
0: Um, so like being unique or different or something new yeah something that
1: and usually usually people who, who do that are usually people who are who are curious in you or they're curious in you or interested in you because they're also interested in themselves you know they want to know about themselves, and so when they're asking somebody, it's like if they're asking somebody a question, it's almost like they're using somebody as like a mirror for themselves. Oh, what will they say? What will I think about that? This kind of thing, or or not, not like you ask somebody a question because you want to know it, you know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: like you generally ask the question, you're not asking the question because have the answer and you want the other person to struggle and then you can like give them the answer so you really want to know something or you're, you're really confused about something and uh, like I was like driving back last night I was like talking to Shravani a lot about sort of the like nuts and bolts of like romantic relationships and Sort of Mm -hmm. how that functions and how people see it in different ways. It's like something that I've never really been too clear about. Sort of how, how can a, how can like a romantic relationship exist alongside like a sort of feeling of love for, for a lot of people or love for everybody? Like how does those things, how those two things work together? Mm -hmm. So I was, you know, I was asking you those questions because I don't know the answer. And then listening to her talk about how she sees it, it's like you're—it's like you're listening in like two different ways. It's like I'm listening to her, but I'm also watching myself listen to her. And you start mm-hmm. to, as she says certain things, or as somebody you're conversing with says certain things, and you there's this weird um, rising up of all kinds of stuff within you that you've never really seen clearly. <laughs> Mm-hmm. which is good it's very good you know you become more conscious of something that's been kind of sunken murky silt within you somewhere in some dark pocket like the spleen yeah like- <laughs> nothing good doing on over there <laughs> so i that's what i value i think in meeting people is this kind of can our interaction like help help both of us become more conscious Mm. versus sometimes a conversation could be just about like forming a tribe or forming an alliance you know like well you know those people over there we're better than, it's, it's like kind of like that <laughs> <laughs> or you know like it's sort of boring those kind of interactions
0: yeah I I always struggled with small talk and I thought that I was uh I thought that meant I was like an introvert or something because I, I didn't enjoy the, Hey, how's it going? Oh, well, I'm doing good. How are you? It's like the same loop. Uh, you're not saying anything.
1: And, uh, I kind of like it though. In a way, there's sort of like, a, it's just, it's like, it's like a way of emoting. Mm. It's like, you're kind of like firing up the, the connection. You say certain words, that like get you to connect on like an emotional level. How's it, how's it going today, man? I'm going good. You doing good? Good. Doing good. <laughs> I mean, nobody, nobody actually believes that, that those words mean anything. It's more like just a, like a, like remember we used to have like dial up as a kid. Oh. <laughs> yeah, when you're connecting to the internet. Yeah. So it's like that, you know. It's like a couple words oh. here and there. It's like you're dialing up and connecting to that other person. That
0: is the most interesting way to describe it. I've. <laughs> it's like dial. up
1: yeah, the small talk is like dialogue. <laughs> Slow and odd noises. And maybe certain people want a certain amount of dialogue because they they feel like, do I really want to connect to this person? You know? Mm. I have to ask a couple, I have to go through some procedures before I decide do I want to connect to this person. There's a preliminary process. Preliminary, right. <laughs> so other people may not be, you know.
0: Mm. Maybe uh huh. Maybe I should look at it more that way. Because I feel like sometimes if you uh, open up into a situation, then you get into a conversation you really didn't want to (laughs) have. Like, I've been on a plane and uh, there were some people who seemed really nice. So I just like opened up and started talking to them. And they just went straight into a rant on Jesus or something (laughs) for like 40 minutes. And I'm just like, oh, I would much rather read the book than be here. (laughs) But... (laughs) I kind
1: of, but because I have an interest in writing fiction, mm-hmm. you know, I'm always open to anybody who want to rant, rant about Jesus to me. <laughs> <laughs> Cause it's like, like, oh, this is like a character here, you know, like, maybe I can put that. As first. <laughs> I got that character needs a little bit of meat to them. Maybe, you know, some, she could say certain words. Oh, that person would say that. <laughs> so something, a little self-interest in listening to, to That's that. That's nice. Uh, <laughs> English majors um, but you know people like I think everybody really for the most part people believe what they say And that's interesting it's like why does this person believe this <laughs> because it's very you know even if it's like the most bizarre I used to like kind of like talking to homeless people I feel kind of scared doing it like if some guy like is like approached you on the street and ask you for money or something mm-hmm. I don't want to give any money to him because I don't know where that money going to go but sometimes I gave out of guilt or whatever but you know you just want to you start talking to them and they might have like the most bizarre beliefs about you know who knows what There is a logic there, you know. Oh, totally. It's like, there is a reason this guy is, or this woman is speaking like this. Mm. It's like, if I can understand that, then... It's like, if I really understand that, then then somehow I can understand something else about this. Like, using that person as a kind of a mirror. Definitely. And hopefully they're using me as a mirror, too. Yeah, mirror, ATM, whichever.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you know uh i was there's someone else who i had on this podcast uh, years ago his name is drew and he has a, a non-profit called project live love and they do a lot of uh work with homeless people they give job training was one thing they do so they'll uh connect it with there's a hotel chain called i i h g i g h one of the two um they they own Some of the big, I think, Holiday Inn or some of the big uh, hotel chains, you know, they're like the parent company. But anyway, um, they organized with this hotel company to do uh, hospitality training for people. So they'd get them off the street, give them food and train them. Mm. And then at the end, they would give them like internships so they could uh, try and get a job at the hotel company. It's kind of cool. So I was doing a documentary for them and I interviewed a whole bunch of uh, people And I I remember distinctly walking into the room and I couldn't, normally you you would have this like preconception, like, okay, homeless means they look like this, this, because that's what you see the people begging on the street. They tend to have like torn up shoes or whatever. And, um, they didn't look like it at all. Like they just look like any other person. So when we started interviewing, I realized like a lot of the people in this program, some people had master degrees in like chemistry or um, uh, one was like an eight-year-old kid who was probably one of the hardest working people I've ever met. Like, he was really intense and focused, but he just had a really bad situation. And like this, the stories just went on, and you realize how many people, there were some really fascinating people that were very competent and um, capable. It's just whatever reason, life dealt them a bad hand, and they ended up there. It was a very eye-opening experience for me with homelessness. Because before that, I right. just didn't have any exposure. That <laughs> was very interesting.
1: I'm, a, I'm no expert on homelessness. I just feel like... When I've been in bad situations, it's... It's just because my mind is turned against me, you know, I've let my mind turn against me. So I think that's, if we have some kind of culture of understanding how this works and how this works, I think people will be able to, I have a faith that people will, or it's logical, logical faith, if, <laughs> that people will be able to steer their lives, you and in such a way that, that, that fewer and fewer will be in those situations. I certainly hope so. Unless they want to be in this situation. People actually like it. Yeah.
2: I mean,
0: some people just get born in a situation that's very, very difficult to get out of. Like, um, I noticed this in India. I was wondering, like, how are these people? You know, you go in some of the cities and there's just like tents going on and on and on. Mm. And it's just their home. They're just living there. A lot of them have a little, some sort of business they do out front, selling things or whatever. Yeah. I'm thinking, like, if you have a kid in this situation, how will they get out? How? How? <laughs> Such. I, I just don't know. And there's so many people like that that I. It just blows my mind that we've allowed it to, to get like this. You look know, 7 billion people, and we're just so many people living like that.
1: Yeah. So. Yeah, we've been. It would be better. If, it'd be better for everybody if if people if we took care of everybody. Do mm-hmm. so you think about like how many how many kids or how many people are are in bad situations? And because they're struggling so much to survive, you know, they're not able to really express their full potential. If you have like seventy billion, if you have seven or eight billion people, how many people are on the planet? I don't even know. Seven point seven. I think, I think if, we're coming up on eight. If you have that many people, like expressing their their potential you know you know how fantastic this world would be like how many things would be like created that you couldn't even imagine you know like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it'd be so great it'd be like the greatest multiplayer game ever created
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh.
1: sometimes I think about life as like a multiplayer game everybody's like has a character and you know like are creating a certain Part of the world, yeah. I think some people think this is all a big simulation, <laughs> big game. It's a fun way to look at it that way, but it's not in a trivial, not a like, not to trivialize life. You know, I just to see life more as like a like a creative play, mm-hmm. not like this doesn't mean anything. It's all bullshit. Not not in that sense.
2: Yeah, I know what you mean. Um,
1: what time is it? Well, let me ask you, uh, why are you doing these podcasts? Oh, uh,
0: you know, okay, I'll give you the, the backstory. Because there's, there's two phases of this podcast. One, when I first started, and then when I like restarted it. So when I was in my early twenties, I was, um, was an actor and i was doing other things where i didn't have to really work that much i just i had enough money that i could live and i would just at that time smoke pot and learn everything i could on the internet like the internet was my library and i was just trying to absorb as much as i could and that was about the time vice news came out and things like that so i started um just Seeing. like, because it's whatever they're showing on vice news at that time was not what was on any sort of tv news thing it was like uh for example i think that was around the time russia invaded ukraine and was trying to take over so they had somebody on the ground like doing a report every single day right. just like a five minute update so things like that i was getting exposed to i saw i mean people were dying so much in venezuela at that time and I think there was an election in India at the time and I was seeing these massive mobs of people just like furiously angry fighting each other shaking like fences out of the ground posts and stuff I I just couldn't I was I was freaking out like I was like what is going on because I was living in this little bubble in my little Atlanta apartment (laughs) with you know very little uh, need to do much to sustain that and so I got kind of freaked out and I thought Okay, there have to be solutions to this. <laughs> so I started Googling.
1: Well, why, why were you, why did you feel like you wanted to create a solution for for many of these problems that were in such distant lands? Mm,
0: well, I mean, not everything was distant. You know, there's still living in Midtown Atlanta. There's homeless people everywhere, and, right. and not so much Midtown, but downtown for sure.
1: Um, there's just a lot of things. So, okay, so when you say like Venezuela or Ukraine, you're you're saying more like. You saw chaos and near saw, and for. I saw... I saw a lot of people
0: struggling pretty heavily in a way that I never knew. Like, I would say in many ways I grew up with... Kind of like middle class, relatively comfortable. I didn't have to worry about survival that much, you know? I didn't have to worry about like... um violence against me or something like this you know so to be exposed to seeing like okay there's entire massive populations of people that are in something's going on that they're that upset or that many people are being murdered or like whatever like something and um i just i wanted to see like okay is there like a solution that's already happened like how do we can we make this not a thing and when i started googling i Over the next few months, I quickly realized that, okay, pretty much for almost every major global issue, there's already been a solution worked out. It's just a question of either funds or people being willing to implement it or education, whatever it takes for that particular solution to be uh, put in place. And so I was like, okay, what do we do? (laughs) So I decided to build a website. And that website was going to be kind of like Reddit with the up, down voting, hmm. except that there would just be a topic, which is like the problem. And there would be three sections below, which are up, down voting. So facts, opinions, and solutions. And I thought, oh, interesting. why don't we just do this and like figure it out together and we can use crowdfunding was becoming really big at that time. Oh. So like uh, Kickstarter and all that was really getting big. So I thought, okay, we can just use that kind of things to generate whatever money we need when someone proposes how to fix this. And meanwhile, we'll just separate, right? What do you, what's the fact and what do you think? And like that. So my thought at that time was I'll use this podcast to get to know people and see what kind of problems people are having. Cause I used to go like, what are the problems you want to fix? It was more like the uh-huh. angle of it. And, uh, and I thought based on that, I'll just look up articles and see whatever I can find and hopefully other people jump on and make it happen. All that failed because I know nothing about launching a forum. I don't get involved in forums. I'm not like, I don't have the network or the the competence to pull that off at that time. Mm. And so it was just me on there <laughs> posting stuff and nobody listening.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but um, there were many other reasons it failed. Mostly uh, my lack of, I would say, probably discipline and like ability to follow through on such a massive
1: task. But you kept the podcast going.
0: Well, I did probably about 10 or 12 of them, something like that. And uh, at that time, I didn't have this switcher thing I was showing you to flip between. So I had to record the podcast and then go back and watch the whole thing and manually cut each thing, uh, each camera angle. I had three camera angles (laughs) Uh and it was a very extensive process and I wasn't good at editing at that time. So it it was very tedious and I got a little burnt out because it wasn't going anywhere. I didn't I didn't know how to make that kind of thing happen. I just knew I wanted it to do happen. And I had some money saved up. So I just paid someone to build the website and I started recording the podcasts. But uh, that's how this started. Um, And then more recently, I realized, you know, I actually enjoyed these podcasts, like the sitting and listening thing. And then I found out about this switcher and I was like, oh, well, for what, three, four hundred bucks? I can fix the whole problem i'll just use iphones and it'll just get cut like in real time if i just have somebody else do the switching huh. so hence shravani came here so she's my switcher i'm still trying to convince her to do some of these interviews and um yeah so now i just thought this is just a really nice way to get to know people because if you look around right now i feel like from the time i left to India in 2016 till when I came back around 2019, basically 2020, the tension is like, you can cut it with a knife. It's just so thick between people. And I just feel like people are getting in these little bubbles on social media of Mm -hmm. people that agree with them and Mm -hmm. they're not listening. So I thought maybe if there are people from all kinds of places, wherever I traveled it, are willing to just share what they think we can get to know them that like context you know right. what do you think about things and then see if that does anything at least i enjoy it i learned from each one so it's nice for me
1: yeah i think it's so uh, it there's you know a lot of vocal false starts here they're like you know the internet is just like a tool and some people use it for these echo chambers other people use it for exploration I'm kind of like in the last year I started to see life more as like more as like a gigantic theme park which contains, like, every possibility that you could imagine. Mm-hmm. And the question is, like, which rides do you want to go on in your limited time here? <laughs> <laughs> so, like... You can do anything, but you can't do everything. I have no idea. Like, I really... I have no idea, like, what, what is going on in society. I can have trouble trying to conceptualize, like trends because it's like all the things that feel true to you are just things that you've experienced. You know, it's like the rides that you've gone on. It's mm-hmm. like, imagine like, imagine like United States was like six flags and you had like all the people, I don't know how many how many rides are on six flags like 20 rides or something at least. And then you had like, you got all the people who go to six flags regularly and you got them together and be like, well, what is six flags? And you've got some group that's you know been on these couple of rides and this group's been on these couple of rides and they they're all trying to talk and like a certain like what is six flags? Yeah. <laughs> in terms of like what is life or like are people tense or not tense i just don't i don't know i guess people i guess people are there are trends but how do you how do you know that those the question, the the question to me is like, how do you know that that's a trend, and not like a trend in you? The question. You know what I mean by that? Yeah, I. I'm not saying you're tense. I'm just yeah. saying, like, like in the past, like when I've been in in certain moods, you know, I it's like I project, I've projected that on the world. Mm. You, know, you, you feel like very angry. Then you, you know, that anger somehow like attracts news that like confirms your anger. Oh yeah, like about the world based. or something. Yeah, it's like it's like so much. Good. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I just wonder what's, what's how Sadguru deals with all this. I don't know. I, I guess mean, like he has clarity, right? <laughs> we hope. Well, <laughs> you know. uh
0: It's funny you're bringing that up because now I'm thinking about this uh, my approach to all that. Somehow I was seeing all these problems and I was looking for solutions to problems. Right when I started international travel, one of the first place well, no, the first international place I went was uh, Peru, and I went um, in Lima. I spent a week there, and then I went in the jungle and I saw this like jungle town. Came back to Lima for another uh, week, and I walked out of the way out of the tourist district and like into like the local areas where this is a 10 million person city it's huge and most of it's pretty impoverished um and i i just realized there's people living on these hills that don't have running water and so they go all the way down the hill that's like the poorest people that right. they, have. they have to go all the way down the hill and then the cleanest water they can get is a box of coca-cola brand water <laughs> and they have to get that all the way back up the hill if they can get it and just seeing all of that, seeing how these people were, I just kind of reinforced that there's problems in the world. Not that there aren't, but, um,
1: uh, yeah, that's really interesting. You brought that up, but as far as I grew, I guess the, maybe the difference between these kind of material problems, I think is more easily to kind of make objective and say, okay, you know, these people need water here. Mm-hmm. When it comes to like emotional, psychological it's a little murkier it feels to try to assess like what the trends are oh I, mm. yeah that that's a better way of asking it
2: yeah
1: i don't know i guess because for a lot of people you know this pandemic situation has been like the worst hell mm. for some people it's been life as usual and for other people it's been like a year of tremendous growth and possibilities like what is it i don't know is it a good thing is it a bad thing is it is it hurting the majority of people emotionally is it helping them emotionally in the long run like what time scale do you want to look at mm. I have no idea yeah I hope it's helping I hope it's
0: I I feel like it's it's a situation where kind of like Sagura says you can use anything for growth like it's pushing us the the virus is pushing us we like we have to start doing certain things because people are just dying so like we've never shut down an economy before right like so that's like uh external thing pushing us there's a lot of people reevaluate priorities Mm -hmm. what do we do a lot of people thinking about like um in texas they had that whole cold snap that froze everybody so like okay, maybe we should put a little bit more effort in winterizing and maintenance stuff and infrastructure or whatever. Uh, It's just kind of like, yeah, if you have a house that's a little slightly dilapidated, but it's doing the job in gentle weather, and then a hurricane, a tornado, or some more extreme situation comes along and it exposes all the
1: faulty spots. So I feel like that's kind of where we're at and we just have to decide as you think the pandemic is is good for the collective consciousness or is it it'll
0: be hard to it just depends what we do with it you know like it can be a very good thing if we choose to make it into that not that people dying is good but that if we allow this to be the motivating factor to decide um like we're at a fork in the road. Do we just try and get back to where we were, which was anyway unsustainable, or do we try and go in a different path, which is unknown? Who right. knows where it could be good, could be bad. But this is definitely going off a cliff. The original path we were going right. down. So I don't know. It'll just be time will tell. I I hope we turn it into something that's good for everybody, but uh, not a lot of evidence throughout human history that that's what'll happen.
1: Just <laughs> isn't. So maybe the pandemic is like a cosmic...
0: I think it's a catalyst. We'll see what what the chemical change happens. (laughs) But... I don't know. It's a big question mark, is what it is for me.
1: (laughs) I have no idea. I I thought I knew something at the beginning of the pandemic of what it was. Yeah? I thought I knew. But now I don't. Uh, Um...
0: So, I like to end a lot of these with uh just kind of a fun what do you what's next for you in your life right now
1: um, so there's a couple projects that i I've been working on that i wanna i wanna finish so i i this year with more of the free time lockdowns I I wrote a the first draft of a novel
2: mm-hmm.
1: I want to um, edit that and work on that to sort of polish that story uh, when I when I was younger I wanted to write because because of the, the potential validation it would bring me you know if I write some great piece of literature or something everybody's like Justin the smart guy or whatever <laughs> <laughs> man he's very smart um, but now it's more like, I feel I like I really feel like if you can write, if you write a story, which is transformative in nature, like a really good story, you know, any great story, you know, the character has a strong desire in the middle, in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then as the character goes toward the middle and end of the story, uh, they surrender something that they thought was true. And as a result of that, they're transformed. Mm-hmm. It's like, if you can write a story like that and really write a powerful one that you read and experience it as true, it, you know, the factually, it may not be true. It could be set in the year 2,500 where, you know, space aliens are growing cotton or whatever it is, but space if exp-
0: aliens growing cotton, <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, it's, but if emotionally it's true and like experience that you read and you're like, you're in this world and it's like, makes sense. It's like, I think if you write a story like that, then you can, you can effectively change your mind mm. and sort of what your own, what, what the DNA of your own story is. It's like you change that somehow. And then as a result of that, you change the direction of your life and, and how you, you may not even change the direction of your life. I Maybe mean, the same things are happening, but you change your, the perception of it, your experience of it is different. Mm. So that's my real motivation to finish this thing. It's like a method of transformation for you. Yeah. And then maybe life gets better. Uh, so I want to do that. And then I've been more and more interested in playing competitive tennis, uh, playing more tournaments, you know, working on my own game to develop a, Certain aspect, certain side of myself that I never had growing up, which is kind of like I was telling you in the car yesterday, this, this more assertive kind of masculine side that's not mm-hmm. afraid to, you know, stand up for something that you feel is true or stand up for the way that you want to go through your life you know. In sport, you know, it's, it's so important to, to not be intimidated, especially as you play at higher and higher levels and there are all kinds of tests to see that you really get it. Do you, (laughs) you play all kinds of people who, who use different tactics and head games to see like, can they, people are trying to throw you off, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of test whether are you, do you truly have that, that inner balance? Is the yoga working? Yeah, is the yoga working? It's like a like an evaluation. <laughs> like it's play when I play a tennis like I play a tennis match, it's like it really shows me okay where I'm where am I at? Uh, you know, what is what's actually going here because you can't. So you've gone back to school. This if you have it. this idea, you, know, you do all this yoga and then I, I have this idea like, oh, you know, I'm very peaceful, loving person or whatever. And then I go into a tennis match and I'm getting beat where the guy is treating me in a certain, is acting in a certain way. And and then there's like some intense anger or imbalance. You're like, okay, well, that's where I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can't lie about that. Yeah.
0: It's hard to be honest with yourself about that when you never put yourself in those situations where you're kind of pushed to see what happens.
1: Yeah, it's a like more extreme, intense situation mm-hmm. to push you, to test what's going on. Yeah. I guess battle would be like the old battle would be like the ultimate situation yeah. for that, but you know I'm I i do not want to be in a battle. No thanks. But tennis maybe is the closest thing to that that I'd like to get involved with because it is a sort of fight. Like it's, cl- it's like it's like boxing, but you don't have to get hit in the face. Yeah, just a ball to the. You face. just get emotionally bruised <laughs> <laughs> if you allow it. <laughs> so those two things are the main things I'm interested in, in making that happen. I think I can do it. It just takes a little more awareness and understanding of my mind and being able to get control of it and not just let it run its past patterns. Mm -hmm. Because if it does that, then I'm just going to do what I've always done. Just keep looping. Yeah, just keep looping. Fair enough. (laughs) All (laughs) right. Well, thank you. This has been really... I hope if I said something, if anybody's listening to this, I said something that makes sense and is helpful uh-huh. a lot of these questions i never really thought about them in these ways so well i hope i was
0: stringing it together loosely helpful <laughs> i every time i do one of these i'm trying to see how to make it a little better a little easier
1: better flow kind of thing well, so uh, it's always that more interesting to to think about things and answer questions in ways that you've never done before you know
2: mm-hmm. it's
1: like just giving the the canned answers. Yeah, yeah. Sort of boring. To speak and also to listen to. Fair enough. I think that's why we get frustrated
0: with politicians. Like you've prepared this too much. Yeah. The can. Uh anyway, thanks so much for doing this. I Thank appreciate you, Jeeves. I appreciate it. And uh thanks, Rob, for being the, the powerful woman behind the scenes, the boss. <laughs> Someone else called yeah. her the boss. And it was funny. <laughs> Yeah, best of luck to everybody. Um. Yeah. Anyway, um, I hope you're having a good day wherever you are, and we'll catch you in the next one. All right. Take
2: it easy.